1: Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss the way our popular storytelling has been shaped and formed by our mythic, philosophical, and historical roots. As always, I am very excited to be here. In fact, there are two reasons I'm extra excited today. Reason number one Today marks the two-year anniversary of the Midnight Myth podcast. Yes,
0: today recording day, not today publishing day. But here we are in the week of the two-year anniversary of us making this podcast and how far we've
1: come. It's amazing. This journey through the Midnight Myth has been the most rewarding thing I have done in my adult life, except for getting married to my lovely podcast host. Yeah, and those things
0: go hand in hand. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So it's been a great two years. We do this because of you, the greatest podcast listeners in the world. From the bottom of my heart, everybody that has downloaded, reviewed, tweeted, talked to us, thank you so very much for going on this journey. We really do this for you, and uh, I just love our listeners so much.
0: Me too. You're the greatest.
1: Reason number two, I'm super excited. Yeah. We are going to my favorite mythic fantasy realm we will be discussing my favorite television show one of if not my favorite book series we are going back to game of thrones and i can't wait to do our next game of thrones character case study if you've listened to us before you know how this works we are going to take a character of game from game of thrones pardon me and we are going to discuss them I have a standing theory that each major character represents a philosophical, moral, or historical system that Martin is playing with in his world to see if this uh, this system, this view, this outlook, this philosophy is able to work in this harsh and brutal world where there are dragons and white walkers. Today, we are going back to the north to discuss one of Westeros's most Disgraced Sons. Oh. We are going to discuss the son of Bear Island, Lord Commander's firstborn son, disgraced knight, Jorah Mormont, a.k.a. Jorah the Andal. Sir Jorah Mormont. Oh, pardon me. Sir (laughs) Jorah Mormont.
0: This is very, very exciting to talk about Jorah because he is... Uh, going to be the first non-POV character that we tackle in this series of Game of Thrones character studies, meaning if we're looking at the books, he does not have any chapters from his point of view and often is relegated to a side character. I'm uh, making air quotes uh, on the show, but if you go back and watch just the Jorah scenes and just the Jorah Danny scenes... Which we've done. Which we have done. Uh, You get a really complete picture of a very complex character, a massive arc, and some just incredible, incredible acting, incredible writing, and just a a beautiful uh, story of potential redemption. We're obviously not at the end of Jorah's story yet, but I have nothing but excitement for where it's going. Before we dive in, Just a couple of quick things. Uh, The conversation never ends or begins here on the Midnight Myth podcast. We want you involved in that conversation. So if you have any comments or questions about our case study of Jorah, or if you have a character that you want us to dig into before April when the show comes back, or if you just want to hear some wacky fan theories on the podcast and kick them around, please hit us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at The Midnight Myth. On Facebook and on Instagram, we are Midnight Myth Podcast. And of course, you can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com to drop us a line. Quick note about our website. If you've been there before, you may notice that a few changes have been made to the uh, site structure. The most exciting of this is that we've gone through all the episodes that are on our Squarespace site at this time and added tags and categories. And the reason we did this was number one, because with Game of Thrones coming back in April and with the vast wealth of Game of Thrones episodes we've done, I know a lot of our listeners have been going through and recapping our character studies. So we wanted to make it a little bit easier for you. So if you head over to midnightmyth.com, you can head to the episodes page and click on the Game of Thrones tag or category, and it will list all of our Game of Thrones episodes for you. So marathon it on the way to, uh, to April.
1: Awesome. So thank you so much, Laurel. Few nuts and bolts. We're going to focus our discussion on Jorah, like our other case studies, primarily around the show. Yes. The books will be referenced and mentioned here and there, but for the most part, we're going to be talking about Jorah, the Andal Jorah Mormont, as it pertains to HBO's Game of Thrones. Um, We're going to take it that you have seen everything, and we are going to spoil it. So if Game of Thrones is still on your to-do list, If you're halfway through your Game of Thrones rewatch and you don't want Jorah's character spoiled, stop now. You've been warned. Spoiler wall is up. Yep. So I think think the best way to kick off Jorah, as he is a more side character, and he also has a significant backstory, to do a little bit of a recap of who he is, where he came from. His house is not one of the great houses of Westeros, and that way we can get a sense, and then from there dive in. Would you agree? Absolutely. And considering that I'm pretty much a Game of Thrones historian as as my part-time job, I'm going to take the lead on that if you don't mind.
0: Please, I'll jump in if, uh, if you get anything horribly
1: wrong. So Bear Island is an island in the north of Westeros. They start the show as the Bannermen to House Stark, which means they're land holding. They are on an island. Their sigil is a bear. Their house words is, here we stand. They are known for being ferocious warriors, they're known for being very tough, they're known for being very northern, and but they're not known for being rich or wealthy. Jorah is the oldest son and the heir to, be, to Bear Island. He will take its keep when his father dies. At, um, I think it was the Battle of the... I forget exactly which battle it was. So it was either ba- at the Battle of the Trident or when Jorah went with Robert Baratheon against the Greyjoy Rebellion. To quash the Greyjoy
0: Rebellion. Yeah, I think it was that one,
1: yeah. Jorah's first wife dies of a miscarriage.
0: Yes, of her third miscarriage after 10 years of marriage to Jorah. Um, After distinguishing himself and being knighted at the Greyjoy Rebellion, uh, Robert throws a tourney at Lannisport uh, to celebrate that victory. And here Jorah distinguishes himself again after catching the eye of a beautiful woman named Liness Hightower.
1: And he marries her, and her, coming from a richer, more wealthier house, has very expensive appetites to which the Lord of Bear Island cannot sustain. This puts him in a bind. He catches some poachers, and to make some quick, fast catch, he sells these poachers into slavery, which is forbidden and illegal. Not a good look. And pretty awful thing to do as well. And Ned Stark uh, puts a warrant out for his arrest and says that, hey, he's going to have to be executed for this crimes. To save his life, he and his wife flee to Essos, in which he becomes a sellsword. She ends up marrying someone else. And Jorah is this wandering sellsword in Essos at the start of the show, where he gets into the service of Daenerys Stormborn, Daenerys Targaryen. Now, He's also a little duplicitous. He is plotting to assassinate Daenerys in season one, which comes back to bite him later on. He gets exiled twice. He gets grayscale, which is like a horrible form of Westerosian George R.R. R. Martin leprosy where you turn into a gray monster and eventually Samwell Tarly cures him of that. And he gets himself back into the queen's good graces and is there helping her as one of her champion knights. And there's a lot in between, so a very quick recap. We thought it was important to highlight the backstory.
0: The backstory is important. It's uh, it's extremely formative for his character in a way that not all the characters in Westeros are, are that deeply formed by what happened in their past. Uh, so it got Correct. him where he is now, and it haunts him to this day.
1: Even in season seven, when he meets Jon Snow and Jon Snow wants to give him his ancestral uh, Valerian sword back, which um, his father was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and gave Jon this ancient sword that's always been in the hands of Mormonts. Uh, even then, Jorah says, you know what? I, I don't deserve it because I brought shame to my house and I brought shame to my family. I can't hold this sword. I'm In a sense, I'm not a true Mormont because of what I have done. So he carries this with him um, throughout the rest of his life. I also think that where Martin is going with Jorah, so I have my theory that they all represent some form of philosophy, I'd like to submit that Jorah represents medieval chivalry. Sure. Sure. Yeah. a term that a lot of us are familiar with in particular you hear the uh, phrase chivalry is dead or chivalry is not dead
0: it, yeah it means today opening doors for women correct. that's what chivalry means today
1: correct <laughs> it, you know but it is a medieval code of conduct that medieval knights were supposed to aspire to correct so knights are the primary military unit in Westeros and because of this, they are held to a code of st- of standard, of honor. And the honor of Westeros is based off of the code of medieval chivalry. So I think to first understand Jorah, it might be fun if my theory holds water, and maybe at the end it doesn't, um, but I'm willing to play around with it to understand a little bit about chivalry, because Martin uses history to inform both his literature and television show. Absolutely. And in particular, he uses European medieval history, and it's based primarily off of a civil war in England called the War of the Roses.
0: Yeah, with the serial numbers filed off.
1: Yep. He has a famous quote where he says, I read history, file off the serial numbers, and ratchet it up to 11. Yeah. And that's where he gets his inspiration. So let's start our conversation with Jora around chivalry. Perfect. So- I have done a lot of research into the history of chivalry. I know you have also done um, companion research around the mythic tradition of chivalry. This is the Midnight Myth, and you're awesome and smarter than me. So I would like to hear from you first about the mythic tradition of chivalry, if that's cool with you.
0: Sure. Yeah, so I was first interested in talking about Jorah uh, because... Watching him closely pinged a lot of things in my mind from my literary education uh, and the biggest ping that I got. And we you know, briefly touched on something adjacent to this last week uh, when we talked about the Kennedys as Camelot and the uh, sort of mythic history that was imbued in that administration. Uh, but the thing that was pinged the most for me with Jorah was actually Sir Lancelot, and it may sound like
1: interesting a there. stretch. Okay, right? okay, I'm it, I'm on this journey.
0: It, it it may sound like a stretch to say Jorah is the Lancelot of Westeros, and it is a stretch. Okay, because uh, he is a character who is in disgrace, who was once a great knight, once a very distinguished knight. But who absolutely destroyed his reputation and is now a coward and a traitor uh, to both the crown of Westeros and to Danny. So, th- this is a character who could not be further from the extremely morally courageous and upstanding, perfect, glorious knight Lancelot, right? And in Westeros, there is a much more like picture perfect Lancelot figure, right? In Jamie Lannister.
1: Uh, you're not really selling me on your I'm, argument I'm not, here
0: but well, yeah it's like you look at Jamie and you're like okay yeah he's this golden-haired beautiful knight who is literally in an adulterous relationship with the queen she just happens to be related to him and that might be a more obvious comparison but what I was and, he,
1: and he's also Jamie undisputed greatest swordsman at the beginning
0: yeah although he does you know enter into a truce at the tourney with Jorah. So those are the two knights going head to head the day that Jorah meets Liness Hightower, which spells his downfall.
1: Oh man, I forgot that detail. Wow. Okay. So we
0: have two, two great knights, both who have their, uh, their very big character downsides. And we have Jamie on this very obvious upward path and Jorah on a less obvious upward path into a, a realm of, uh, you know, moral courage and so i'm interested in where or where not jamie where Jorah intersects with the lancelot myth and with the aura that is created around that character okay. so that's where i kind of dove into uh this study of Jorah as the as as chivalry
1: i love it we're peering under the hood yeah let's do it
0: so i uh, you're going to talk a little bit about the history of chivalry in the real world but i in, in my world, it's entered me through the Arthurian legend, as I have already alluded to, and that's mostly through the 12th century poet, Chrétien de Troyes. This is the man who gives Lancelot a lot of name. This is the French poet, not an Englishman, but a Frenchman who essentially invents the medieval Arthurian romance. So this is not stories of romantic love necessarily, but stories of sweeping gestures, stories of knightly prowess and deeds, and courtly love, and chivalry as this religious code that guides these chaste, noble characters to great, great heights. And he writes uh, a few very important pieces of Arthurian literature. One of those is going to be Yvain, which is the Knight of the Lion. One of those is going to be Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, and the last very important one is going to be Percival. But I wanna talk about the Knight of the Cart because this is the first time that Lancelot, who had previously been a side character only in Chrétien, who had never appeared in the Arthurian legend before, becomes a main character. And he doesn't get named until halfway through this extended long poem. He just is the knight who is doing the deed. What happens in the knight of the cart is that the queen, Guinevere, the wife of the great King Arthur, is abducted by a knight named Meligant. And to make things simple, this knight is the best knight. He's the greatest knight, and he is so devoted to his queen. He loves his queen so much that he will do anything to get her back. So he volunteers to be the champion to get back Guinevere and to rescue her. Now, the romantic love part of it is cast in a pretty favorable light in this poem. The fact that this knight has a has an adulterous love for Guinevere and that she reciprocates that love is not at all uh, you know, looked at in a bad way in the knight of the cart. But what happens along Lancelot's journey, one of the first things that happens is that he loses his horse and a cart becomes available to him, which gives us the title of the poem. And the most shameful thing that a knight could possibly do is ride in a cart. Knights are supposed to ride horses. If he got into the cart, everybody would hear about it and he would never, ever live it down. So Lancelot, loving Guinevere so much, hesitates for two steps. And then he gets in the cart because he will do fucking anything for his queen and everybody hears about it and everybody calls him the knight of the cart every time anybody sees him they're like oh there's that knight that rode in the cart never let him live it down it's like this medieval uh you know complete embarrassment and this total shame that's brought to him
1: i think i see where this is going
0: yeah lancelot also has to cross a bridge of knives in this story or a bridge of swords A bunch of crazy, ridiculous things have to happen for him to reach Guinevere. And when he reaches Guinevere, and she's heard about the cart, she's not like, I can't believe you got in a cart. She's like, I can't believe you hesitated for two whole steps. Whoa. So if if there isn't, I mean, the story goes on from there. There's some sex, there's some magic, there's all kinds of Uh, You know, everything that you would expect in an Arthurian romance. But that's the moment that I really want to hit on here. It's that perfect, overblown, overemphasized, hyperbolized idea of what uh, chivalry or honor or devotion to someone is supposed to be, where this knight has debased himself so much and crossed a bridge of swords, and she can't believe that he hesitated. And that's where I kind of want to segue into into Game of Thrones because I think it gives us such a great example uh, of how unrealistic the idea of of chivalry can actually get and how, I think you'll talk about this when you talk about the history, Uh, it probably wasn't a real thing. Uh, Chivalry was, was not a real code that people lived by Uh, Chrétien is writing about something that is an ideal rather than a reality and Martin is very interested in how we take literary ideals and historical ideals and we cut them down to size we put them in the real world and see how they shake out so I like to imagine Jorah as a character who You know, he won a tourney. He married his queen of love and beauty. He'll do anything for her because he's heard all the songs of Westeros. He's heard all the stories of the great knights. He's a northerner who's finally breaking into this southern stratum, and he's married the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. He's gotta do anything for her. He is, in many ways, a casualty of what happens when you're fed myth rather than reality, and, he takes the wrong lessons because it's all well and good to get in a cart and embarrass yourself for love of a woman. But it's another thing to completely compromise your morals and your, uh, your, your moral fabric and sell slaves and perform atrocities. So,
1: or conspire to get or, yeah. a teenage girl who you've pledged to protect assassinated.
0: Yeah. And when we look back at the Arthurian legend too, this, Love between Lancelot and Guinevere, this romantic love, in its early stages is painted as something that actually elevates Lancelot and makes him better. But then as the stories evolve and different writers and cultures take it on, that love is what tears apart King Arthur's court. Right. So Jorah, I, I like to imagine, is, uh, is what happens when, uh, when the wrong lessons are taken from our myths, if he is told that this is how i'm supposed to uh gain glory, this is how i'm supposed to secure romantic love, uh then he, he's he's never going to reach any level of spiritual elevation.
1: I love where you're going with this. A thing i'd like to add into your metaphor because i think understanding the Lancelot uh, chivalry and chivalric chilva—that's a tough word to say. Chivalric chivalric tradition think, yeah. <laughs> is really what motivates Lancelot to protect Guinevere. In many ways, it's what motivates Jorah to protect and serve his wife, which leads him to exile. And then, in exile, his over romanticized uh, vision of home and wanting to right. go back to Bear Island allows him to, you know what? I'm already disgraced. I'm already exiled. I'm already in a strange land selling my sword to the highest bidder. What's, you know, writing to Varys and conspiring to kill this young girl? In all of the wrong I've done, where does that even compute? At the very least, I'll be able to get home. In other words, now that I'm disgraced, there's no level of disgrace that I wouldn't be willing to sink. But there's one kernel of him that he stops the assassin. Yeah. This one kernel of him where he realize, realizes that true chivalry does mean putting someone ahead of you. Right, Right. It puts the needs of another ahead of yourself. There is no set written rules of chivalry. So there is no actual like code by which one can pick up and be like, "I want to do this." Is this chivalrous or is it not chivalrous? Right, doesn't exist. Plenty of different authors in medieval times wrote codes, but they're poets, they're songwriters, they're monks, but no one was walking around being like, "Ah, you did this, and that was not chivalrous." <laughs> so let's understand the history the chivalry of chivalry police. a little bit, you know. Yeah. And interestingly enough, King Arthur is intimately linked with the history of chivalry, the actual history. And that's why chivalry is such a powerful concept. That's why it's so uh, pervasive in medieval history. And that's why the knight code of honor in Westeros is based upon chivalry. Mm -hmm. So long ass time ago, there was this thing called the Roman empire. And God, I love how everything comes back to Rome. (laughs) Just as someone who loves Roman history. All
0: roads do lead to Rome.
1: In the western half of the empire, so these are our territories that are modern-day Germany, France, England, Spain, Italy. That was the western part of the Roman Empire. Rome collapsed. There is no emperor, and there are just independent uh, Germanic kingdoms vying for control and supremacy within each other. This is the period commonly known as the Dark Ages, because things like history and literature Art, architecture, they drop. But primarily dark because there's not a lot of historians, so we don't have a clear picture of what happened. Right, It is dark to us. We don't really know the history that well. Out of the Dark Ages emerges a kingdom that comes to shape and define medieval Europe. That's the kingdom of the Franks under the reign of Charlemagne, Charlemagne. who forms an empire that he calls the Holy Roman Empire. So... In this time period, under the the guise of the Holy Roman Empire, an emergence of a pan-European medieval identity emerge in which the power of the church and the power of the crown are intimately linked. So lo and behold, flash forward a couple centuries, and there's this guy named William, now known as William the Conqueror. Yeah. He takes the papal banner of the crusade to a land where there's too much paganism. That land is called England. Now it's called England. Wasn't called that then. There was a Catholic high king by the name of Snoot the Great, but he was from Viking origins and he converted very late in his life. So how really Christian is he? Right. So William, who is of the Normans, um, goes to the Pope and says, hey, listen, I don't think this land is Catholic enough. We need to purify it. The Pope gives him his blessings. He conquers England and forms the medieval England under the Norman dynasty that is secured in its Catholicness with the blessing of the Pope. Wilman the Conqueror had a bit of a problem. And the bit of the problem was the dominant military unit at this point was a man wearing plates of metal on a horse with a lance. And he had all of these men. Now, this preso- p- proposed several logistical challenges. One, horses are expensive. Two, armor is expensive. Three, coordinating large, large movements of men wearing metal in horses so that they can be good at battle it takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of time. He needed a professional warrior class. Right? He needed a group of warriors that he could call upon at any time so that he could then fight for England. So he does. He conquers England. Now he has this professional warrior class and they don't have a war. What the fuck are they going to (laughs) do? Right. Well, what do a lot of professional warriors do in peacetime? They take what they want when they want it. And if anybody asks questions, they spear them with their fucking lances. These are the most vicious and savage warriors of the land. They literally conquered the pagans and flushed it out and made England a Catholic medieval European a nation. So there's a problem. Too much pillaging, too much raping, too much violence. There needs to be a way to rein this in. So these are no longer just warriors. They now become knights. They are a class of people dedicated to warfare and they have a code of ethics. And where does this code of ethics come from? Two places. One, the myth of Arthur. If you have the cap the capacity to do great harm to your enemies, you must do so only under the most King Arthian style. You must conduct yourself like Arthur and his knights. Your job is to do good works. Your job is to protect women, not rape them. Your job is to protect the church, not go to a monastery, drink all of their wine, kill all of the monks, and take all of their treasure. Your job is to honor God. It's to honor women. It's to be honorable. Now, the word chivalry, there's a lot of argument and debate about where it's based from. But the current scholarship, at least that I found, bases it as a French word. Be like Charlemagne, be chivalrous. Charlemagne, who formed the Holy Roman Empire, who took the Dark Ages and brought light. Be like these great, the great Franks, who formed the most important medieval society. So two bases, the historic example of Charlemagne and the mythic example of Arthur brings chivalry to England and brings a code of conduct that is romanticized, it's talked about, and you knights must be chivalrous. Otherwise, you do not deserve the power of arms. And hence we have chivalry as we know it. And chivalry is clearly the honor code of the Knights of Westeros.
0: Absolutely. They religiously adhere to it, or at least purport to. Uh, And it's why Jorah is so tormented, right? Because he he was given this knighthood, he had this opportunity, and he knows that he blew it, but he, deep in his heart, wants to be an honorable man, wants to do the right thing. He just has really poor judgment about how to accomplish that
1: uh, because at all times jorah in his journey is the jorah is the journey out of chivalry to it yeah. it is the journey of dishonor to honor it is the journey of serving his wife then serving his desire to go home and then to truly serve something greater than himself yeah so You mentioned something like, hey, you'll touch on this in the history. There never was chivalry. It never really existed, right? I'd like to butt up on that, because on one hand, this is true. Knights still went around raping and pillaging, but this code of conduct mattered. For example, we'll go to Game of Thrones. There's a scene where the Hound looks at Sansa and says, Your father's a killer. Your brother's a killer. One day you'll have sons, and they'll be killers too. And he points to his burnt face. This is what killers look like. I'm paraphrasing. That might not be the direct quote. Right. What the hound is doing in that scene is saying there is no chivalry. There's only violence. The only thing that you can expect men to do and be is violent. So you better get used to the violence. Sans is another character that's very romanticized in the chivalric, chivalric, in chivalry. Damn it. I don't know why (laughs) I'm making it so hard on myself. In chivalry. Yeah. Well, What Jor proves is that there can be chivalry. And I'd like to read a quote. And this is from a really great book um, that I have perused through. I won't say I've read. But this is a book that's called From Chivalry and Violence in Medieval Europe by Oxford historian Richard Kelper. And if I brutalized your last name, Richard, I do apologize. And this is about realizing that, hey, were the knights really chivalrous? No, they probably weren't. Beginning students, of course, often decide to debunk chivalry. The CADs did not live up to the high ideals, after all. Any slice of human history could, however, show groups of people more or less professing one course and more or less following another. Surely that discovery cannot be the point of serious study, nor need it be to the point in a study of chivalry and order. The chivalry that that knight's practiced upheld the high ideals of a demanding code of honor. As we shall see, these ideals were probably achieved as nearly as any set of human ideals can ever be in an imperfect world. Mm. Yet even when achieved, their ideals may not have been fully compatible with the ideal of a more ordered and peaceful society also being advanced during the age of chivalry.
0: Very interesting.
1: What this historian is arguing is that having a high moral code for which people should strive for is a good thing. Often we fail to meet that standard. After all, we can look in our own age when we see people who read a religion of peace but then go make war. This is something that we need to be comfortable with when we're trying to reconcile chivalry. The fact that Jorah is disgraced, dishonored, twice banished for his betrayals and his lies to Daenerys is the precise reason he is the hero of chivalry. Because chivalry was often sought after and often failed. And Jorah has often sought after his honor and his loyalty and to redeem his name. And because he fails, doesn't mean chivalry itself has failed. And that I think is one of the most fantastic lessons that we can learn through Jorah. You can set the highest ideals for yourself out there and you will probably not make those ideals. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and nor does it mean those ideals are in and of themselves a failure.
0: Amazing. It, it's sort of like setting a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So you have, uh, you have a problem. It's that men are beasts and you want men to be less beastly, so you say, in the past, and hopefully in the future, this amazing honor code really worked, and people got better because of it. And you say, King Arthur's court did this, Charlemagne's court did this, Uh, all the great Roman emperors upheld this, whatever you have to say, and then that inspires people to uh, at least reach for it. And in Jorah's case, Uh, the idea of living up to the knighthood that he was granted is uh, a star that he continues to reach for. I think very much the problem uh, with Jorah in the first place uh, being a a casualty of the myth of chivalry, as I said before, is that he was caught up in uh, sort of the material uh, gains of chivalry, right? So it wasn't about... Uh, devotion for devotion's sake. It wasn't about piety for piety's sake. It wasn't about nobility for nobility's sake. It was about nobility for this hot lady. It was about piety for this hot lady. It was about, you know, this woman who's half my age and how awesome is it that I have a hot wife um, and what will I sacrifice for her? Um, and those aren't meaningful sacrifices. Those are uh, demeaning sacrifices. Um
1: yeah, and, and Jorah says to Tyrion, and I believe it's season five. I forget which episode, so pardon me. We've watched a lot of Jorah scenes. Yeah, He says to Tyrion, I was like you once. I was a cynic. There was a point in Jorah's life when he, after he gets banished where he's like, chivalry doesn't matter. There is no right and wrong. All you got to do is carve a little bit out for yourself, and that's the best that you can do. Believe in nothing, right? As Tyrion believes in nothing. And then Jorah stands witness to greatness and witness to Daenerys give birth to dragons and see her rise and be a part of her journey. And that inspires him to believe, which brings me to another point of chivalry. Sure. The chival- chivalry only existed as a code for the Knights and the Knights primary job is to serve. And what Jorah needs to learn is to serve and Every great leader in history that we can think of, from George Washington on back, needs a Jorah Mormont by their side, needs someone there to pick you up when you fall, needs someone to be willing to put themselves into harm's way to protect you, needs a Jorah Mormont, because when Daenerys is at her weakest in season two, walking through the deserts, with no strength left in her, it is Jorah who picks her up. And because of that, he helps get her ultimately to where she needs to be. Because for the world to be a better place, for Danny's vision to happen, she's going to need Jorah Mormons on her side. And that is another great lesson, that it's okay to be the witness to history and not to be the history itself.
0: It's also worth noting uh, in terms of his, relation, his political relationship with Danny uh, that he, he does provide a, a moral anchor. Uh, sometimes he provides a, a, a voice of dissent that she needs to hear in order to double down. But it's, it's very much worth noting that when she, when she banishes him for the first time and he leaves her service... That's when she starts making more political concessions. That's when she gets engaged to Isdar Solora, whatever his name is. That's when she reopens the fighting pits. That's when she starts to reluctantly compromise her uh, her very rigid ideals about uh, about slavery, about freedom, about humanism, and she is able to reclaim them once Jorah is back in her service. So having the former slaver next to her forms this incredible uh, reminder of the mistakes that she doesn't want to make. And when she sends him away, she doesn't have that voice anymore. She's got a bunch of yes men. And she does need, in some cases, Jorah's voice uh, saying, maybe you should do something a little more practical. Well, I'm not going to do practical. I'm going to... I'm going to do sweeping romantic gesture. Yep. So yeah, very interesting thing that I noticed.
1: A- a- absolutely. So when Marine starts to fall apart is directly when she sends away Jorah. Yeah. 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 I totally, totally agree there.
0: Um, so I also, I want to talk a little in depth, if, if you're okay with this, about the romance. Uh, and this is little r romance for the first time i say big r romance on this podcast a lot because i'm talking about romanticism or i'm talking about uh, genre or style but this time i want to talk about romantic love let's do it and it's not something we talk about too much with game of thrones there certainly are romantic relationships on game of thrones of all different kinds uh, but they don't usually take a front seat and they don't usually work out very well for and,
1: people. And they usually only happen to Jon Snow.
0: They usually only happen to Jon Snow for some reason. Um, and He's a
1: very pretty man. <laughs> Sorry, I tried to do a uh, northern voice there. I won't do any more accents.
0: But what's interesting is there are even fewer uh, instances, very few instances on Game of Thrones of unrequited love which when you think of Jorah the first thing you think of however unfortunate the term is friend zone sir friend zone Mormont um, and how deeply he longs for Danny and how much she continues to shut him down Um, but the only other real unrequited love on the show is Peter Baelish's love for Catelyn and that's a very political manipulative insincere form of love
1: and, uh, Tormund's lust for Brienne.
0: Oh yes. But you know, it could, it could happen. It could totally happen. Um, but so I, I think it's, it's absolutely worth taking a closer look into this instance of all consuming, sincere, unrequited love. Um, I want to make sure we draw a line here because, there are some major differences between the books and the show in terms of how uh, his yearning for Daenerys is depicted. In the books, he does make some pretty, like, major moves on her and is like, you should marry me, and he kisses her and looks at her breasts and all this stuff. But that that doesn't really manifest on the show. He never, ever oversteps his bounds romantically with Dany. Uh, He is very much... Uh, Pulled back, and the most we ever get uh, is sulking when you know she's hanging out with other guys, or uh, the the forced confession of his love for her in really bad timing moments. But yeah, I want to I want to look a little closer at what that love means for this character and his growth over time.
1: Yeah, I'm into it. You know, I would start off by saying that his love for Daenerys is complex. It is not a just, you know, dirty old man lusting after a young girl.
0: Right. Although there are some
1: That it's part of it, but yeah. it's not just that. Right. You know, he comes to see her as a valuable political and military asset, one that he should follow. He is inspired by her vision and passion and it teaches him to believe he trusts in her magical nature and thinks that she has the ability to make the world a better place and wants to live in that world. But at the same time, he's totally hot for her.
0: Yeah. So the, the major question that I have about this romance goes back to his backstory and goes back to this Lancelot Guinevere double-edged sword of, uh, the love that lifts Lancelot to knightly deeds and then tears apart the kingdom. Uh, is Jorah's love for Daenerys transformative or destructive? Uh, In other Mm. words, is he redeeming himself for his past shame through a more noble love, a more noble purpose, or is he continuing to repeat the old patterns in the name of an inherently flawed code of valor like chivalry that's led him down such a dark path? So that's my question. Yeah, I just want to put that out there and chew on it for a little bit.
1: Um, That is a very powerful question. So let's start with this. I want to start at the end. And I ask you yeah, in rebuttal. That's great. Has Jorah been redeemed for his past?
0: Ah, uh, well, um, I would say, if not yes, um, he is very much on his way toward that. I think that his story is of redemption.
1: So I think because he is cured from the grayscale. He is purged of the uh-huh. symbolic disease that was... So there was a rot in him morally yeah. that then does now manifest physically. And because Samuel's connection to his father, e.g. seeing him as a Mormont first and foremost, is the catalyst by which Sam then decides to cure at great risk to himself, he decides to cure Jorah, we see the purging of that rot because the rot has been purged on his body, to me, that is like a cleansing or a baptism that allows him to then go back to the queen's service. And now that he is in the queen's service, he's got no pretense about whether or not he'll ever have a romantic relationship with her. He's completely given that up and he can simply devote himself to serving the queen. I'd say that is a full, complete character arc from Disgrace, to redemption.
0: That's okay. Great.
1: No, no. Go ahead. Oh,
0: I just wanted to say uh, while you're on the the purging of the grayscale, it's also that uh, that scene with Sam is a symbolic forgiveness from his father. Right? His father's not with us anymore. We shall never see his like again. But Sam does that as an act of kindness for the old bear. He's like, I know about you because I served your father. And now I will help you serve your queen.
1: And you're not going to die today, You're not going to
0: die today. So that is like a symbolic passing of forgiveness from your Mormont.
1: And it restores him as a Mormont. Yeah. He is a Mormont now. Absolutely, Because he is his father's son, he gets cured of grayscale. He has been redeemed. So to me, that story arc is one of redemption. It's one of the best stories in all of season seven. Yeah. And it completes his journey. What does Tyrion say in, I think it's season five, out of the fighting pits, we have Tyrion and we have Jorah in front of the queen. And the queen is kind of poking and prodding at Tyrion, seeing if he's worthy of serving her. And he wants to know she's worth serving him. And he says, you know, you can't kill a person that's devoted to you. Speaking of Jorah because that's going to not that's not going to inspire a lot of devotion. Right. But when you go to Westeros, Jorah can't be with you. And he uses the word can't. Not it's a choice, it's like, hey, this is impossible. There's no way you can be a queen in Westeros with Jorah by your side. But now Jorah is by her side.
0: Yeah, and she said I I need you by my side when I take the Seven Kingdoms. So that
1: has flipped on itself. Jorah has been redeemed. Because Jorah has been redeemed, in my view, granted, I'm willing to debate it, because he has been redeemed, what redeemed him? The love of Daenerys. And learning that that love of Daenerys, learning what that love means, and learning how to express the love in a way that is not idealizing a young woman and just wanting a yeah. young woman to want her because she's a hot, powerful babe. Yeah. Right. It is a legitimate, real now love. It is service of the thing that is greater than yourself.
0: Yeah. I I tend to agree with you. I think uh we see a tremendous uh change in Jorah from you know the early seasons where any other man who crossed Danny's path he would cast aspersions on. Uh, in order to ingratiate himself further with her and distance her from other men. Uh, And over time, he shed those those jealous impulses. It took, I think, the turning point of being looked, well, not in the eye by Daenerys. She couldn't even deign to look him in the eye when she said, leave this city, I never want to see you again. Uh, But there's another symbolic purge in that scene, he admits that he loves her. He says, I have loved you. And by saying that out loud, it, it doesn't erase the romantic feelings, but it lets them go in a way. Uh, th- there's this great catharsis of him getting that literally off his chest that makes way for that love to transform into something greater, into something... Um, more cosmic and into an embrace of the unrequitedness of it. Uh, We get a a really interesting uh, foil pair when, uh, when Jorah and Dario are trying to save Daenerys from, uh, from the Dothraki after she's captured season six, which yeah, I think does a lot to illustrate how far he's come in, in his relationship to her. Um, where Dario is very much beating his chest, being like, you know, I I have sex with her. Yeah, you often. know, I've you know, bro, I've hit that. <laughs> I've hit that, and you never will because you, you're and old and you can't, and you can't, and your heart will probably go. But then Dario is unable to let go of his knife uh, to enter the sacred city of the Dothraki. He
1: Vastothrak. Is,
0: yeah, He is clinging symbolically to his penis because it's the only connection he will ever have to Daenerys. Whereas Jorah now has this ability to not be disturbed by it, to be like, yeah, makes me sad. Whatever happens with you happens, but it's not going to happen with me. I get it. I still will do fucking anything for her.
1: And the, her vision of the world is worth going through the pain of being in love with someone who will never romantically love you back.
0: Yeah, so I I appreciate it that he's able to come to terms with the fact that it's not gonna happen, but use that as the mechanism by which he can transcend his own uh, mortality, his own age, his own shame, his own past, uh, and become a true knight and a true uh, honorable, chivalrous man, There's one other piece of character development that I want to quickly call out that actually happens in Jorah's absence uh, prior to his banishment from Dany's uh, kingdom of Marine, And that's in an exchange that happens between Missandei and Grey Worm. So this is after the scene where uh, Grey Worm has been spying on Missandei as she's bathing in the river. And he goes to apologize for looking at her with desire. And he thanks her for teaching him the common tongue and says that the lessons that they have together are precious to him. And Masande is like, I never taught you the word precious. And Grey Worm says, Jorah the Andal taught me the word precious. So it's a very quick little exchange that shows us one, that Jorah is able to give these very sensitive, very, um, uh, very gentle and loving words and uses of language to this character but it also symbolically links up his love for daenerys or the change in his love for daenerys with the most innocent and sincere love on the show so i don't know if it's saying outright that jorah's love is like that but by putting it side by side, it makes us question how similar they really are. Is Jorah becoming less of a possessive lover, less of an idolater, and more of a sincere friend uh, who sees the, you know, the privilege of being in Daenerys' presence as reward in itself?
1: Absolutely. And I can't wait to see what's in store in season eight for that character. Yeah. And I absolutely love Game of Thrones and Doing this character case study also proves another thing to me. All of the great characters come from the North. Right? I am a Northerner. I yeah, would the serve north is pretty great. House Stark. And the Mormonts, the House of Mormont, what they The mean, skin
0: changer women who go and f- <laughs> and make babies with bears.
1: And by the way, Lady Mormont, who pledges to fight for Jon Snow in yeah. the Battle of the Bastards, Mormont. may be the best small character in terms of time right. in the history of television. Yeah. So I love everything House Mormont, and I really enjoyed this character case study. Yeah. A final thought to wrap up in conclusion for my side of things Please. is that chivalry is was a often sought after ideal that most of the time people failed to achieve. It emerged honestly as an attempt to rail in bad behavior by armed men in the medieval times, in particular in England after the conquest of the Normans, forming the Norman dynasty. It's the basis of the code of honor that we see in game of thrones. And Martin playing with chivalry tells us that at the end of the day, Fighting for an ideal and failing is still worth it. It's one of the few uncynical aspects of Game of Thrones. Jorah's character is one of redemption. It's one of that of a man who loses his honor and finds it again, a person that can control his emotions and his feelings and put his duty above his own selfish desires. And someone that has to learn how to do that. And what that tells me. In a hostile, threatening, dangerous, and chaotic world, fighting for honor and trying to be an honorable person is okay, it's worthwhile. Don't become a cynic that just drinks yourself to death after murdering your father, right? Don't (laughs) don't give up after the thing that you love and the thing that you want to serve and see succeed banishes you. You can fight back into the good graces. Everyone can be redeemed, but you do have to act to do it. You do have to be in the fighting pit.
0: You have to fight. Um, By way of a final thought from me, I want to call out a moment in the episode when Jorah is sold into the fighting pit. He and Tyrion are picked up by slavers and they essentially beg to be... uh, sold into that lifestyle so they can get in front of Daenerys again. And the slaver who is auctioning off Jorah in the same form of self-fulfilling prophecy that this code of chivalry came to be for Jorah and probably came to be for medieval men, this slaver mythologizes his backstory. What we know as a you know, story of shame and brokenness and disgrace about Jorah becomes a story about how Jorah killed Khal Drogo in a fight in single combat. And he held a flaming sword at the trident and he sold himself into slavery because he wasn't able to please his woman. And in the end, that kinda happens. Jorah sells himself into service. He stops scapegoating, he stops compromising his moral ideals, and he says, all I have left to do is lay down my life for you, and I will do it because I love you. And that love is pretty goddamn noble. Um, Watch out for some blog content this week because I have a lot more to say about Game of Thrones and it's conversation with the Arthurian legend. And uh, I am really excited to get some more uh, research done with that.
1: And if you guys enjoyed this episode and want to see another Game of Thrones character case study,
0: yeah, tell
1: us what character please. we can be persuaded to t- dive into any character because probably my favorite thing to do on this podcast is talk Game of Thrones.
0: It is pretty great.
1: It's a lot of fun. And here we stand, and until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind.